Good afternoon again. It's uh, wonderful to have you all with us. So glad that you're able to gather with us. We're going to be continuing uh, this afternoon in our study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so please join me for a, a short word of prayer before we begin. Father, we are thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word uh, by which you reveal to us your character and by which you reveal to us the person of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would make the words of your scripture come alive, that you would illumine them so we might understand them. Uh, Lord, that I would make those words clear in the preaching today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, uh, actually probably more than several now, uh, right after I graduated from college, I ended up having a roommate who had a dream of playing professional basketball. Uh, he was a very, very good basketball player. He had played at university and had even had a few tryouts with uh, professional teams in the United States, so the, the National Basketball Association, the NBA. Uh, so for a time, his dream and hope to, to play in the NBA, to play professionally in the United States seemed reasonable. I mean, it was difficult, yes, but it was at least in the realm of possibility. But it never happened. We didn't end up rooming together for long, but periodically I would go look him up online, check in to see whether he had actually ever made it professionally. Uh, it seemed as if over the years he got a couple more tryouts. He either, even had a couple short stints playing professionally overseas, but he never made it to the NBA. He never really made it to have any sort of professional career. The thing is, he never gave up on the dream of making it into the NBA. Even in his mid-30s, six or seven years removed from the last time that he had had any sort of a, a tryout, he kept believing that he would make it. He kept training. If you saw his social media feeds, you would, you would see this. The, the problem is, I mean, people are retiring from professional basketball in their mid-30s. By this time, with no real playing experience behind them, being in his mid-30s, he had absolutely no chance of making it. But he kept hoping, and he kept dreaming, and it actually got to be just a little bit sad seeing him from afar that he was putting so much hope in this dream that was not going to pan out. And so after a time, his, his hope and dreams were, were no longer ones that were based in reality. Now, they may have been in his early 20s, but by the time he reached his mid-30s, these were dreams that were no longer based in reality. Well, friends, if you have spent much time around the church, if you've spent much time around Christians, you have probably realized that hope is a central theme to the Christian faith, but not a hope like the hope of my roommate. The hope of the Christian faith is a, a sure hope. The Bible even defines faith as the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And so Christians hope in God, Christians hope for Christ to come again. We hope for eternal life. But as opposed to my former roommate's hopes and dreams, the hope of the Christian faith is a confident hope. And it's a confident hope because it relies on the promises of God, which are sure. It relies not on fate. It relies not on chance. It relies not on wishful thinking, but on a Savior who came in the flesh 2,000 years ago, died, was raised again, and will one day return. 
Well, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. Uh, and as a reminder, if you don't own a Bible, please come talk to us. We will do our best to get you a Bible that you can have and you can own for yourselves. But today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. And in our text for today, we're going to see that the coming of Jesus, so this is uh, not long after Jesus has been born. If you remember last week, we saw Jesus being born. But we see the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of hope for a man named Simeon. A Simeon had longed for the arrival of the Messiah. He knew the prophecies of Isaiah and other prophecies, and he longed and looked forward to the day that God would send the Messiah to redeem his people. And God had promised Simeon that he would see the Messiah before he died. And so Simeon's hope is revealed here in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, but Simeon's hope was not simply a, a personal hope, it won just for him. Uh, Simeon's hope was the embodiment of the hope of Israel for a savior. And this hope that was revealed to Simeon in Jesus Christ also represented a future hope. Uh, Jesus had been revealed. Uh, Jesus was on earth. Uh, but salvation at this point in time when Simeon sees Jesus in the text we are in for today, uh, salvation had not yet been accomplished. Yet Simeon looked forward to that day in confident hope. Because if we have, as we have seen so much already in our study in Luke, God had fulfilled his word. God had promised Simeon he would see the Savior, and God fulfilled his word. God had revealed to him the long-awaited hope of Israel. And so please follow along as I read from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus the name given him by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. I have two points for you to consider from this text this afternoon. Two points. The first is faithful followers. 
And the second is a righteous revelation. So faithful followers and a righteous revelation. And I think the, the main idea, the, what Luke would like you to see in this text is that Jesus Christ is the righteous revelation of the Father and his followers are marked by righteousness and a confident hope in him. And Jesus Christ is the righteous revelation of the Father and his followers are marked by righteousness and a confident hope in him. Uh, so first, we're going to actually kind of take those a little bit in reverse order and first look at faithful followers. And so in these verses, Luke directs our attention to, to four faithful followers of the Lord, uh, Mary and Joseph, which kind of go together, uh, Simeon and Anna. And what I want you to see is that these faithful followers, all of these individuals are marked by an obedience to the Lord and a confident hope in the Lord. You might just say a trust in the Lord. And so Luke holds them up as, as models of what it looks like to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. So though Jesus is just a baby at this time, though his public ministry has not begun and won't begin for some 30 years from this point, I think within Luke's gospel, these individuals serve as something as models of what it looks like to follow after Jesus, to be a disciple. And the first thing we see is that faithful followers are marked by obedience. You can see this from the, the very first verses of our text. Luke points out the ways in which Mary and Joseph faithfully followed the demands of the law of Moses, uh, specifically those surrounding uh, childbirth. And we're not going to turn there, but if you wanted to see what these specific laws were, uh, the law of Moses concerning childbirth, you could flip over to Leviticus chapter 12, but I'm just going to summarize these things for you. Uh, well, we see that Mary and Joseph have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day as the law required. We see that Mary completed the required period of purification following childbirth. So following childbirth, the, the Old Testament law said that new mothers were unclean for a, a period of time. They were ceremoniously unclean, which meant that they could not enter the temple until they brought a sacrifice to the priest and were uh, to make atonement and that the priest would then declare them clean. So Mary completes this required period of purification. We see that in the text. And then we also see in, in verse 24 that uh, Mary, and it really says Mary and Joseph bring the offerings the law required for Mary to be declared clean. Uh, so there are a, a few reasons in the Old Testament that people might be declared ceremoniously unclean. Uh, things like childbirth, as we see in our text, uh, skin disease, uh, touching dead bodies. There's a, a few other ones as well that could make someone ceremoniously unclean. And so these people would have to bring offerings. The atonement would have to be made that they might be declared clean. So we'll even see later in Luke, Jesus heals uh, a man from leprosy. He tells him to go present himself to the priest that he might be declared clean. Well, it's not because having a skin disease or having leprosy or, or giving birth to a child were inherently sinful. Now, there were sacrifices for sin, outright sin, and yet this ceremonious, ceremonious, being ceremoniously unclean was not pointing to the fact that giving birth to a child was sinful. Instead, it was pointing the people to a deeper truth, and that was their need for cleanness, their need for purity to enter the Lord's presence. It's why they were not allowed to enter the temple until this atonement was made. It was a reminder to point people to their sin and the reality of their spiritual uncleanness before God. 
It's to remind them that they needed to be spiritually cleansed. Ultimately, it pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And so this is what's going on in the text. These are the laws that Mary is fulfilling. These are the laws that she is being obedient to. Uh, so they follow these laws concerning childbirth, uh, circumcision, purification, the atonement for pure, uh, after childbirth. But Mary and Joseph also obey the law by presenting or consecrating Jesus to God. Uh, so following the Passover, if you remember the time where the nation of Israel uh, was rescued from their bondage in Egypt, uh, the final plague was when the angel of death came and killed all the firstborn males in Egypt, even among the livestock. But the people of Israel had the blood of the lamb that they were instructed to kill a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, paint the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over, and their firstborn children would be spared. And so ever since that happened, Israelites were commanded to present their firstborn to the Lord. It was a reminder of God preserving the firstborn of Israel from death during Passover. It was a reminder of when the firstborn were spared because of the blood of a lamb. Well, if you've been a student of the Bible for some time, you probably can see then, even in these laws that Mary and Joseph were observing, following the birth of Jesus, there were clues about what Jesus had come to do. Jesus had come to be a once-for-all sacrifice to cleanse his people from sin. Uh, so following Jesus' death and resurrection, no longer would new mothers need to come and make purification offerings uh, to the priest. No longer would priests have to make, the, make atonement for people. Jesus came as a once-for-all sacrifice to make his people clean, to cleanse them from their sin. And... By his blood, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. By the blood of the Lamb, Jesus delivered his people from death. He cleansed his people and purified him by his blood in the same way that his people might be spared from death as, as those Israelites were so many thousands of years before in the Exodus. All of that Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus Christ. That's a lot about the Old Testament law, some of the intricacies about the Old Testament law. But I think the, the main point of all of this is to say that Mary and Joseph's obedience, we see them being obedient to follow this law that God had given, it demonstrated them to be faithful followers of God. They obeyed the law of Moses. They even obeyed the words of the angel Gabriel who had told them to name their son Jesus. We see in the text that they, in fact, do name their son Jesus. Uh, but as I just kind of reflected on their obedience here and them following these, these stipulations of the law of Moses, I think one of the things that stood out was just how ordinary their obedience was. I mean, put yourself in, in Mary and Joseph's shoes. Uh, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to conceive. Though she had never had sexual relations with a man, she was going to give birth to the Savior. Uh, this, in fact, is what happens. She conceives as a virgin. She gives birth to Jesus. Uh, this birth of Jesus, as we saw last week, is announced by angels to shepherds in the field who come and find Mary and Joseph and tell them all about it. Oh, so if you're in Mary and Joseph's shoes at this point, I think you have to be wondering, uh, what do we do now? 
I mean, we're parents to this extraordinary child. All of these amazing things keep happening. What do we do now? Well, the answer that they seem to have landed on is to do the next right thing, to simply obey what they knew to be right. They did not know what the future would hold. Uh, they knew uh, something of who Jesus was, but they just obeyed. They just simply followed the law of Moses like any faithful Israelite parent should. And brothers and sisters, this is simply what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Uh, you may not know what your future holds. You may not know what the, the circumstances of your life will hold. But to be a faithful follower of the Lord is simply to do the next right thing. Uh, Christians, we do not wait for God to provide some miraculous sign or speak through angels or dreams. These are not the ordinary ways that God speaks to his people. He speaks through his word. And Christians are simply to know his word, to read his word, and to obey his word. They do this in the confident hope that what God says is true, that it is worth it to follow him. And Christians are those who simply commit to do the next right thing. They act according to God's word. Well, it's not just Mary and Joseph in this text that point us to the fact that faithful followers of the Lord are those who obey the Lord. A Simeon and Anna do as well. In verse 25, Luke describes Simeon as a man who was righteous and devout. Now, this fact that Simeon was righteous and devout does not mean that Simeon was perfect. It's simply a way to say that he was obedient, that he followed the law of Moses. When he sinned, he brought sin offerings before the Lord. He was a faithful follower of the law, as were Mary and Joseph. And I love the fact that this just seems to be how Simeon is known. His reputation is a man who is righteous and devout. Now that should be, that kind of description should be the goal of, of each and every Christian. To be described like Simeon is righteous and devout should be a goal of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God calls us to be holy as he is holy. Our lives are be, to be characterized by righteousness. This is what it looks like to be a faithful follower of the Lord. I mean, what a wonderful description that we might be described as a people who are righteous and devout, committed to the Lord, wanting to obey his word, glorifying him in all we do. Well, when it comes to Anna, though Luke doesn't use the words righteous and devout to describe her, this is the picture that he paints. Uh, one, he goes out of his way to point out that Anna was a prophetess or a, a female prophet, one who spoke the words of the Lord. Uh, so that points to a, a righteousness on behalf of Anna right there. I think Luke mainly points that out so we know that her words and her testimony are trustworthy, uh, that she is one to be believed. Uh, but that's not all. Luke doesn't just describe her as a prophetess. It appears that after seven years of marriage, Anna's husband died, and she had been living as a widow ever since. Now, in the, the Greek text, the original text, it's a bit unclear whether the 84 years it mentions in our verses are referring to Anna's age or the, the length of time that she had been a widow. But in either, way, in either case, she had been a widow for quite some time. 
And what had Anna been doing in this time that she was a widow? Becoming angry at God? Complaining to the Lord about how difficult her life was? Growing bitter against those who had husbands? Pursuing worldly pleasure? No, it doesn't appear as if she did any of those things. Uh, Not that she was sinless, but she spent her time in the temple fasting and praying. As a prophetess, there was some way in which she must have been speaking the words of the Lord, as she does in our text. She devoted herself to the service of the Lord. And now, friends, the, the lesson from Anna is not that you should never marry or that it would be wrong to remarry if your spouse dies. It is not that to faithfully follow the Lord means that you need to spend all of your waking hours in the church building or at a Bible study. But at the same time, Christians are called to do all things for the glory of God and to present their bodies as living sacrifices to God. Christians, to put it in just simple terms, that means that whether you are at work, at home, at church, on vacation, or anything in between, you are to serve the Lord and glorify the Lord in all your conduct. Regardless of the venue, to be a faithful follower of the Lord is to serve and glorify the Lord day and night in whatever position that he has placed you, in whatever circumstances that he has placed you. I do want to say just because faithfully following the Lord does not mean you have to spend every waking hour at church or in a church building, it is right and it is good for Christians to faithfully serve the body of Christ, the church, with their time, their energy, their resources. And brothers and sisters, serving the church should characterize faithful followers of Jesus Christ, whether it's running slides for the service, managing kids in the back, Inviting church members over for dinner, meeting up for coffee to discuss the Bible, or anything in between, part of faithfully serving the Lord is to serve his church. And friends, I think one of the best ways you can do this is to do what we see Anna doing in verse 38 and encouraging your fellow brothers and sisters with the hope of the gospel. Encourage them to persevere. Remind them that Faithfully following the Lord is worth it. Help them to take their eyes off of their own circumstances and place them on Jesus. Like Anna, speak of the wonders of God to those who similarly hope in him. Well, friends, what I want you to see from these individuals is that faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ follow him in obedience. But that's not the only thing that we see from the lives of these four faithful followers of the Lord. We also see that faithful followers are marked by a confident hope in God. Now, there doesn't seem to be anything special about Mary and Joseph, Simeon or Anna. Luke describes Simeon as an ordinary man. He does not seem to be someone with a a high position. Anna was a widow and had been a widow for quite some time. Um, The offering of of two turtle doves that we think Mary and Joseph bring for Mary's purification was actually the offering that the law allowed for those who were too poor to bring a lamb. 
the offering that uh, those who came following childbirth were supposed to bring as a lamb for a burnt offering and either a turtle dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. But for those who could not afford a lamb, they could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. And so Mary and Joseph, again, were pointed out they were not wealthy people. They were not influential people. They were poor and lowly people. And so what distinguished them, what distinguished these four faithful followers of the Lord was not their social status, was not their wealth. It was that they had a confident hope in God and in his salvation. Faithful followers of God, faithful Israelites, they did not obey the law out of duty or as a way to earn God's favor. We see over and over again through the scriptures that uh, simply doing some of the stipulations of the law without a heart that desired to glorify the Lord is not commended. But these individuals obeyed in the confident hope that God would be faithful to his covenant promises, that he would do this by sending a Messiah, as we've seen through Luke, a king to sit on David's throne forever. They looked forward to the day in which God would restore the fortunes of his people. They obeyed out of a a love and devotion, they seem to obey from the heart. So Mary and Joseph obeyed the Lord looking forward to that day and they persisted in obedience as these promises began to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, Simeon himself was looking forward to God's salvation. He was looking forward to the consolation of Israel when God would comfort his people. Uh, Simeon's great hope seems to be the salvation of the Lord. God had promised him that he would see the Messiah before he died, and he looked forward to that day. But I think he was likely looking forward to the day when God would save his people long before God made him that promise. Uh, That was his confident hope, and the Lord blessed him. The Lord blessed his faith by giving him the promise that he would actually get to see Jesus before he died. And when he saw Jesus as the Lord promised, he says to the Lord, now, master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. In other words, seeing the Messiah was all that he could have hoped for. I get to see God fulfilling his word. I get to see the one through whom God is providing salvation. Simeon was content. I think Simeon was more than simply content. We see that he was overjoyed. And as we saw In previous weeks, as we saw last week, that his joy overflowed into praise. His great hope was not an earthly reward, but marveling at God's faithfulness to fulfill his word and to send a savior. Well, Anna herself, though her lot in life seems to be living as a widow for the vast majority of her life, I'm guessing not what she was expecting when she got married, Uh, Well, though her lot in life had been to live as a widow for many, many years, she rejoices in the fact that God allows her to see the Messiah as well. And as we saw last week, and is the same thing that we see in Simeon's life, her joy overflows, and she goes and tells others who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, she went to tell others who were faithful followers of the Lord, who were similarly hoping in the salvation that God would bring others who had a confident hope in God. So yes, obedience, certainly righteousness, marked the lives of Mary and Joseph, of Simeon and Anna, but they were not ultimately trusting in their own righteousness. They were not trusting in their own good works for salvation. 
they were marked by looking forward to a savior. They were marked by a confident hope in the promise-keeping God. And brothers and sisters, though, followers of Jesus are to be righteous. Followers of God should be marked by righteousness. The hope of the Christian faith is not that we can do enough good to earn God's favor. No, the hope of the Christian faith is not that we can somehow balance out the scales. The hope of the Christian faith is a hope in a Savior who came to comfort and console his people by forgiving them of their sins. It is a sure hope that one day we will see Jesus face to face. Well, to abruptly transition to an illustration, if many of you have watched movies about war or if you've watched many movies about war, you have probably seen a movie in which a soldier is captured, somebody is captured, and his enemies try to torture him to get him to reveal some information. Now, usually these soldiers, at least in the movies, if they're good guys, they resist revealing information. And why is it that they resist? It is not benefiting them to withhold information at that point particular point in time. They are suffering physical consequences or emotional consequences for withholding information. It becomes very costly. Well, the reason that they resist revealing information, it's because that they are loyal to their cause. They are loyal to their country. Perhaps that they are just loyal to some of the other people who are their friends who have not been captured. They believe in what they are fighting for, and that belief motivates them to keep important secrets. Well, this is something like, or at least perhaps a crude illustration of the motivation of a Christian's obedience. Christians obey not because it is always easy. Uh, They do not pursue righteousness because it is always easy, but because they have an unwavering trust and confidence in their Savior. They have a, a hope in eternity. And it's a sure hope that motivates a Christian's obedience now. It is that sure hope that helps Christians endure suffering with joy. It is that sure hope that helps Christians persevere in the midst of trials. It is that sure hope that helps Christians to fight sin. By pointing us to Mary and Joseph and to, to Simeon and to Anna, Luke is showing that faithfully following the Lord is to confidently hope in him and to follow him in obedience. These individuals had a confident hope in the promises of God. They had a confident hope that a Savior would come. And that hope, that confidence, that trust in their promise-keeping God motivated their obedience. Brothers and sisters, we have the distinct advantage of getting to look at the salvation that God has already accomplished. They looked forward to the day when Jesus was come. We get to look back at the day that Jesus did come. Christ has come. Sin and death have been defeated. And so because of this, we have even more reason to hope and believe in that day that Christ will come again. When our salvation will be complete, when Christ's kingdom will be fully and finally established, when we will be glorified with Christ, friends, that confident hope should also motivate us to follow the Lord in obedience and devote ourselves to his service. The faithful followers of the Lord are those that are marked by obedience and a confident hope or a trust in God. And that brings us to the, the second and the, the final point of the sermon, which is a righteous revelation. A righteous revelation. That was a long first point. I promise the second one will be shorter. Perhaps not much shorter, but shorter. 
Um, but I also think that the second point is more important. And that is because for as much as Luke directs our attention to these faithful followers of the Lord, to Mary and Joseph, to Simeon, and to Anna, uh, Jesus is once again at the center of these verses. Uh, this is who Luke is drawing our attention to. Uh, Jesus is the righteous revelation of the Father. And it is Jesus who is once again revealed in these verses, as he has been over and over and over again so far in Luke's gospel. And as he will continue to be over and over again as we continue our study in Luke's gospel. And so since Jesus is at the center of these verses, I want to go back through these verses and show you what they reveal about him. And so first, if we rewind back to those opening verses in which Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. Well, I showed a while ago how uh, I want, well, I want you to see that he used Mary and Joseph's obedience to fulfill his plan of redemption. It wasn't just that Mary and Joseph were righteous and that they were faithfully following the law of the, war, the Lord. That is true. But I also want you to see that he used Mary and Joseph's obedience to fulfill his plan of redemption. In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul writes this. He writes, For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So again, for what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, what, what Paul is writing here is that the law of Moses could not save because no one perfectly obeyed the law. As faithful of followers as Mary and Joseph were, as, as faithful of a follower as Simeon was or Anna was, they did not perfectly obey God. They did not perfectly follow the law. And under the law, they stood condemned. And so what did God do? Well, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in them and might be fulfilled in us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do what they could not do. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could not do, to perfectly obey the law of the Lord, to live a life of perfect righteousness, to live a life completely devoted to the Lord. And so that Jesus might perfectly fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, God had Mary and Joseph bring him while he was just a baby to be circumcised and presented to the Lord as the law required. Now, if they had failed to do this, if they had not brought Jesus to be circumcised on day eight, it would not have, been, it would not have made Jesus suddenly a sinner. But because of their obedience, because they followed the law to the letter in bringing Jesus to be circumcised on day eight, because they brought him and presented him at the temple as the law commanded, God ensured that no charge could be brought against Jesus, even one as small as the fact that he might have been circumcised on day 10 instead of day 8. No, Jesus fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. Even as a baby, 
No one could say that he did not do all that the law demanded. God used the obedience of Mary and Joseph to ensure that Jesus met all the righteous demands of the law. And so friends, for all the talk about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus, I hope you see that no man or woman, not Joseph or Mary, not Simeon, not Anna, has perfectly obeyed God. All are deserving of death. All that is except Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfilled and obeyed God's law. He was never sinfully angry. He never disobeyed his parents. Actually see that in our text for next week. He never looked lustfully at a woman. He was perfect. Jesus is the righteous revelation of God. And he did all this. So as Paul writes, the law's requirements would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Friends on our own, we are not faithful followers of God, but Jesus was. And God's gift of grace is that when we are saved, we are united to Christ and given his righteousness. The Bible says that Jesus takes on our sin, the penalty that the law demands for sin, and he gives us his righteousness so that God no longer sees us in our sin, but sees us through Christ's righteousness. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Jesus gets our sin, we get Jesus' righteousness. Jesus gets our sin, we get Jesus' righteousness. God does not look at us and see our righteousness, but we repent and believe, and when that happens, God sees us through Christ's righteousness. And he also gives us his spirit that we might become faithful followers and walk according to the spirit and not the flesh. The answer to becoming a faithful follower of God is not to try harder, but to ask God to strengthen you by his spirit that you might obey. On our own, we cannot be faithful followers of God. We can only do this by the power of, of the spirit at work in us. The spirit that God gives to all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, these glorious truths the truth of this great exchange of Christ taking our sin and we getting Christ's righteousness is the reason that Luke, that Luke says that Simeon is looking forward to the consolation of Israel. That he says Jesus is the consolation of Israel, or at least Jesus' coming is the consolation of Israel. Jesus will be a comfort and a consolation to his people because he will free them from their sin and suffering. Friends, if you long to be free from the burden of trying to earn your own way to heaven, look to the consolation of Israel. Because of Jesus, you do not have to work and work and strive and strive and do good and do good just in the unsure hope that God will somehow look at your life at the end of your days and accept you. Now you look to the consolation of Israel, Jesus who obeyed on your behalf. You do not have to earn God's favor because God is pleased in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's favored one. Friends, if you long for a certain future, look to the consolation of Israel. If you long to find comfort and peace amid the anxious sufferings of this world, look to the consolation of Israel. It is only through the certain hope of the future that you can find peace and rest in the world today. For those who are in Christ, there is a promise of a day that there will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more tears, no more suffering. Uh, I 
well-known pastor in the U.S. by the name of John Piper once said, God prepares a person to receive Christ by stirring up a longing for consolation and redemption that can only come from Christ. So God prepares a person to receive Christ by stirring up a longing for consolation and redemption that can only come from Christ. In other words, the longing is not enough. A longing to be free from the world's burdens, even longing to be free from sin's burdens, is not enough. You must look to Christ. You must trust in Christ. And the, the glorious truth of the gospel is that Jesus is not just a consolation for Israel. It's not just, he's not just Israel's consolation, but he is a savior for the whole world. You look back at, at verse 30 of, of Luke chapter 2. When Simeon sees Jesus, he rejoices, and this is what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people, Israel. Well, Simeon rejoices that he has seen Jesus, who is, who is God's salvation. But specifically, he rejoices that God has prepared his salvation in the presence of all peoples. That the coming of Jesus was a light of revelation to the Gentiles, not just the Jewish people. Salvation is for Jew and Gentiles alike. The thousands of years before this day in which Simeon sees Jesus, God had promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed in him. Now, this is what God meant. He was looking forward to the day. This promise to Abraham was anticipating the day that one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus Christ, would reveal salvation and forgiveness to all. Now, the good news is that, brothers and sisters, the good news is that we have been included. Salvation has been revealed in Jesus Christ. But it's not just been revealed to the Jewish people. It has been revealed to all people. Praise be to God. But friends, I want you to see that even as Simeon delivers this good news that Jesus would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, he provides a warning. And that warning, or at least that sobering thought, is that not all will believe in Jesus. Many will oppose him. Look at verses 34 and, and 35 of the text. Then Simeon blessed them, them being Joseph and Mary, and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. By Jesus, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The Bible says that God sees the heart and that God knows the heart, but Jesus would reveal hearts by how people responded to him. Some would believe and reveal themselves to be faithful followers of God, but many, many more would reject him. As Luke writes, he is destined to cause the rise and fall of many, and he is a sign that will be opposed. Now, ultimately, this this opposition and the, the truths of these words would become most evident in Jerusalem about 30 years after these events at the crucifixion. The religious leaders of the day and the crowds gathered in Jerusalem, they wanted to kill Jesus rather than believe. And they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Well, in that statement, their hearts were revealed. And so Jesus died a gruesome death on the cross. This is the sword that would pierce Mary's soul. 
as she would see her son rejected by men and die on a cross. But friends, the amazing part of this is it was all part of God's plan of redemption. By his death, Jesus took the penalty for sin for all who would repent and believe, Jew and Gentile alike. And Jesus did not stay in the grave, but rose three days later, defeating sin and death, that all who repent and believe will have eternal life in him. That, that is the confident hope of the Christian faith. And friends, Jesus is still at work revealing hearts today. And so as, as we draw this to a close, I just want to simply ask you this afternoon, what does he reveal about your own heart? The question that confronted those who are witnesses to his time on earth still confronts you today. Will you believe or will you oppose? Will Jesus be your consolation or will you oppose him? As we have seen over and over again in Luke, God reveals himself to the humble and lowly in spirit, those who cry out to him in repentance and look to him for consolation. So friends, if you are here today, if you are here this afternoon and you are not a Christian, I hope that you would do that today and that you might be transformed into a faithful follower of him, that you might obey him and that you might confidently hope in him. Your hope is not in your own goodness. It is in Jesus Christ alone. And for those of you who are Christians, I pray that you will find your rest in Jesus, that the future hope of your faith is a present encouragement, that you would know the consolation of Jesus Christ. If you do not feel that, if you do not experience that right now, know that that is revealing something about your own heart as well. It is revealing that you are not actively trusting in the Lord. You are not actively hoping in the Lord. Perhaps there is something about God's character or Christ's work that you are not actively believing. So if that is you, I pray that you will remind yourself that Jesus is your consolation, that you have forgiveness in him, your future is secure, and that faithfully following him is worth it. Let's pray.